Good morning, Mosaic Church. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. If you're new to Mosaic, we are so glad that you're here with us. As a church, Mosaic exists to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to the life of our church through community groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve, you can text the word Mosaic to 97000 and we'll follow up with you this week. As we get ready to worship through singing, we just want to remind you that children are always welcome with us in service. We also have a kids ministry for kids birth through fifth grade, where they will have a time of worship and gospel-centered Bible teaching that is age-appropriate, as well as a nursing mother's room just outside the lobby should little ones get hungry or restless. Again, we're glad you're here today. Let's worship Jesus together. Feels like it's been a while since I've seen you guys. Um, I don't know why that might be. But anyway, um, hey, several weeks ago we had uh, our Fall Fest, and that went really good. Uh, I was nervous about that and because uh, it was raining, and it was just really was a great turnout, and the chili was awesome, so thanks to everybody who did that. And uh, yeah, as a church, we just love to have fun with one another, and that was really uh, a success. We had fun together, and we feasted on chili together, so that was great. And uh, I was going to say that last week. Obviously, I wasn't here, so I needed to get that out this morning. Um, the, the next thing I have is a bit of a lengthy announcement, but uh, it's one that I'm always really excited about giving. Our, our church-wide Thanksgiving outreach is coming up, and uh, this will be our fourth year doing this. And if you haven't been here uh, for it before, the vision is really simple. Uh, it's just the gospel, okay? Uh, the reality is, as believers who are involved in the life of our church, we experience something like Thanksgiving every week, right? Uh, every week, just about, we gather in one of those homes, normally it involves some tasty food, at least in our community group it does. We sit uh, in a, a circle and we, we pray and we give thanks to God for all the many blessings of, of life, acknowledging that everything good flows from him and specifically uh, from the grace that he offers to us in his son, Jesus. And so really my argument is, what is this uh, if not thanksgiving? That's Thanksgiving. Jesus says to his disciples, um, he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And what we have seen is the grace of God offered to us in the gospel of his kingdom. And so uh, the, the friendship with King Jesus that we now have overflows so often that as Christians, we really don't need the prompting of a national holiday to be thankful. We're just always thankful and we always are coming together to be thankful together and to celebrate the work of God being done constantly through us and in our midst as we follow Jesus as the body of Christ. And see, when we do this, it's, it's really a picture of what is to come. When Jesus returns, he says that there's going to be a great celebratory feast at his table in the kingdom of God where we will be rejoicing and worshiping him forever. And so this is why it says in Luke 14, Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's saying, don't just keep the generosity of God to yourselves, but instead, out of the overflow of joy that we have in the gospel, share with others. 
Share it with those who need it, that they might taste and see that the Lord is good and inquire about the hope that we have in Christ and his resurrection. So anyway, with all this in mind, what we've done for the past several years is just make a bunch of Thanksgiving food as a church and then plate up a bunch of meals and then distribute them throughout Crestview to those who otherwise didn't have a traditional Thanksgiving meal like most of us honestly take for granted every year. Because the truth is, while many in Crestview will choose to stay home and celebrate with their circle of friends and family on the holidays, many um, don't actually have that luxury, either because they don't have the resources or they don't have the support system um, around them, inviting them in on Thanksgiving. And so as the people of God, Jesus' church, we figure, why not share with those people uh, some of the tangible love of God that we have all the time? And so this simple idea has gone increasingly well over the last few years. Our plan in recent years has been to go out to several neighborhoods in Crestview that appeared to have the greatest need. And we uh, we wanted to give away about 250 meals and share the love of Jesus and the gospel with anybody who would listen to us. Um, And we figured at first we'd need about 15 to 20 committed volunteers for this kind of a thing. But it turns out we usually get closer to like 40 volunteers and we distribute somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 350 meals. Along with uh, that, we obviously share the gospel with those who we serve meals to. And so uh, this is a great outreach, not just for community service, uh, but for the great commission to go forward. And so that's what we're planning to do again this year. On Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, November 24th, uh, we are going to prep a bunch of meals with a short letter about the love of Jesus uh, as well, and a, a few toiletry items and things like that, some sweatshirts that we buy in bulk. Uh, we're going to pass those things out in the same area that we've discovered has the greatest need. And this year, we're also going to serve a bunch of meals to the folks over at the Crestview Manor, uh, who we've been beginning to build a relationship with recently. So if you're interested, we'd love for you to join us uh, in this, because as always, we need a great team to pull this off. Um, the need is probably, you know, 20 to 25 volunteers, uh, but uh, the more the merrier for this, really. The more we have, the more fun it is, the more we can do. Um, not everyone who volunteers will necessarily be uh, going out into the neighborhood, so to speak. Um, some will just uh, prep food. Some may help with setup. Some will um, actually go out and distribute. Uh, we serve meals here at the building, too. We always do a Facebook event, and so if anybody wants to just come up to the church building uh, between like 9 and noon, we'll pass out meals like that, too, and we often get into conversation with folks um, like that as well. And so in, in regards to time, we run this outreach from about 8 a.m. to noon. That way we're not uh, foregoing Thanksgiving ourselves, but we're structuring our personal times of celebration around the opportunity that we have to serve others who may not have what God has so graciously poured out to us. And so my question to you is, what do you say? What do you say to that? Why not sacrifice some of our Thanksgiving day and spend our time and money making food for others in our community and uh, just pray that God would give us the privilege to minister to the people around us who really need it. Uh, a couple years ago, <clears throat> leading up to Thanksgiving, I actually got a call from an organization called Panhandle uh, 211, and they're a local helpline uh, for health and financial relief resources. They said, hey, are you guys going to do this Thanksgiving meal that you do um, every year on Thanksgiving? I said, yes. And so the person said, well, good, because <laughs> we don't know of any other organization in Crestview that's doing something like that. And we get calls on Thanksgiving Day every year uh, about people 
uh, wanting to know where they might be able to get a meal. So um, the physical and spiritual need is great, and I hope that you will join us for this. If you're interested, um, there's a sign-up sheet uh, at the connection desk. I think that'll be in the breezeway, David, right? Okay, so that'll be in the breezeway. Please, please, please stop there. Uh, put your name and your contact information on that because it's really going to help us logistically to know who we have and being able to communicate out um, in kind of big blast emails or texts and things like that so we can let you know what's, what's going on uh, as we move along towards this outreach. Also, uh, if you will, uh, help us collect some like travel toiletries for people in our community who may need them. That would be awesome. We do that uh, in conjunction with another ministry partnering with PATH. Um, but uh, PATH has been doing a lot of work, and we're out of toiletries. So um, if you'll help us collect those as well, we will distribute those to people who need them during this outreach, but also we just need to replenish our supply for PATH as well. And so when you sign up for the outreach, uh, you'll see that there'll be a list there. You can take it with you of the, of the toiletries and everything that we usually collect and, and need, okay? So uh, we think this is going to be another great uh, outreach this year, and so I hope you'll consider uh, making the sacrifice with us, um, foregoing your time and your, and your jammies, watching the Macy's Day Parade and all that, uh, and come and be the hands and feet of Christ, okay? We'd love for you to do that with us. All right. I know that's a lot, but it's going to be exciting. We're really looking forward to it. We're continuing today in our series, uh, What Do Christians Think About Whatever? And if you missed the premise over the past several weeks, we polled this church body for things that they would like for us to address topically, uh, doctrinal things, cultural things, uh, and, and so forth. And so now for four weeks, we'll be selecting the most popular and relevant submissions to teach on. A couple weeks ago, we discussed the doctrine of hell which was challenging, but I hope helpful and encouraging in the end to all who uh, heard that. Last week, um, as I've already alluded to, I got terribly, terribly sick. And so Matt Davidson, who leads our student ministry, preached in my stead. And he asked the question that no one asked, but uh, that everyone needed to hear and needed to think about. What do Christians think about idolatry? Uh, Which was super timely and convicting and helpful for many of us. So Matt, thanks brother for that. We love you, man. And uh, appreciate you being ready to deliver the word in and out of season like that. Um, But today, we'll be talking about Christian apologetics. We had several people ask um, about how they can humbly but skillfully defend their faith. And so I'm going to do my best to uh, give you a helpful start to that today. So let's pray and uh, we'll, we'll jump into it. Let's pray. Father, my, my prayer this morning, as always, is that you would be glorified and this body of believers will be built up by the proclamation of your word. Lord, apologetics is a topic that can be pursued intellectually with very little consideration of the heart. And so I pray that that would not be the end of this message, but rather that from this message, we'd all be encouraged to study and know the faith that we claim to believe, that we would not be mere consumers of information on Sunday mornings, but that we would be disciples, that we would be learners who are seeking to be saturated with the truth, that we might live our lives more intentionally for you. In particular, that we might be disciples who desire to share their faith and make more disciples as you have commanded us and have a working knowledge of apologetics to that end. God, we don't simply desire to be right 
about what we believe, we want to lead others to believe what is right and to do so in a compelling way with love and compassion, not arrogance. So would you be with me now, Lord, as we discuss the concept of defending the faith, our faith in you. We want to be people who do that because your word says we should be. I pray that by your grace, this time will be helpful, edifying, perhaps even convicting to some. We love you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, we got a lot to cover here, so uh, I'm just going to start off with this. I think uh, the, the first thing we should do is define apologetics. That's the kind of a big word that maybe a lot of us are not thinking about frequently. And so uh, Vody Bauckham says that apologetics is about knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others in a winsome and effective way. And once we understand that, we realize that all of us are not only called to apologetics, but all of us are equipped to be apologists. So to say it plainly, apologetics is the branch of Christian theology devoted to defending the faith, as it were. And I, I agree with Bauckham, not on everything that he says, but definitely on this point that all Christians are called and equipped to be apologists because we're all called to share our faith in the gospel and to get into conversations with people who don't currently believe it in order to compellingly invite them into the good news of great joy and hope it provides. So really, um, if we're faithful, and I hope we are, this is really the premise for all of this. If we're faithful to get into evangelistic conversations, those conversations can and likely will quickly turn into apologetic conversations, Right? They, they can go from what we're saying people should believe to why we think they should believe it, okay? And the way I'm going to go about trying to help us grow as apologists today is to spend some time actually defending the Christian faith in a few of the best ways uh, that I know how. But before I do that, I want to speak generally on the topic of apologetics because I, I want to make sure that we come at it with the right mindset and with the right heart. And so I, I want to... Um, read to you the actual question that was submitted uh, for this topic. Uh, there were some others that were similar, but the wording of this one was really helpful to us today. I think they said this. They said, how can I validate my faith and the existence of God to a non-believer in a way that is informative and not argumentative? This is a great question. Uh, I don't know who sent that in, but it's a good one. And we should definitely be asking that as Christians. I'd like to address it in two parts. Number one, how can I validate my faith to a non-believer? And then how can I do it in an informative and helpful way? First of all, we all have to start out this conversation of apologetics by recognizing, as Christians, we cannot validate our faith to a non-believer, <laughs> but that God can and that he graciously uses us in the process of doing so. Now, the reason I think it's crucial to split that hair, so to speak, you're like, that seems like, I mean, why even say that? But it's because from what I've seen, one way that apologetics can really get off track into a mean-spirited tone is when uh, some who are trying their hand at it forget that at the end of the day, while the Christian faith does have a lot of good intellectual answers for hard existential and philosophical questions, 
the only way that someone will be saved is by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to the truth about God. <laughs> they have to be born again, right? And so good evangelism is not merely based on sound logic. It's based on faith. That's not to say the claims of Christianity are illogical, because I don't think that they are. But at the end of the day, the most foundational claims of Christianity require us to believe things that we cannot now see with our eyes, right? 1 Corinthians 2 says this, says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, as helpful as a discipline as apologetics is to the Christian who wants to explain their faith to a non-believing friend um, in a way that is coherent. Genuine Christianity is a spiritual matter, and as such, it requires spiritual insight that can only come from God. Thankfully, the, the perfect God tells us that he works through imperfect people like us, explaining our faith imperfectly. That's good news. Uh, I say that to say that apologetics is a worthwhile endeavor, even though we are not the ones who make people believe the claims of Christianity. That's God's jurisdiction, right? He desires to use us as vessels for the work of faith that he does in the hearts of people. And so two verses that I think form the foundation of this claim that we should give ourselves to the work of apologetics are 1 Peter 3.15 and uh, Jude verse 3. In uh, 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, get this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So that, that's pretty clear, right? Essentially, as you go about your life as a Christian, be prepared. Be prepared to account for why you believe what you believe. When someone says, hey man, what's with all this Jesus stuff you're so excited about all the time, right? And honestly, if we're not living our lives in such a way, this is a side note, that anyone would ask that, that might be a problem. So we should think about that. <laughs> you would think people would be asking us more. But anyway, Peter says, you should be ready for that question with some well-thought-out responses, so as ready as you are to talk about your football team and the intricacies of the stats, guys, you should be ready to talk about Jesus with more excitement. Amen. More excitement, okay? As ready as you are to talk about kids or shopping or whatever women talk about, ladies, <laughs> you should be ready to talk about Jesus right? And, and he says the responses should not only be good defenses of your hope, but they should be gentle and they should be respectful. That's the tone, okay? Um, Jude verse 3 says, uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the context for this verse um, is really more addressing apologetics with not non-believers per se, but other professing believers 
who have been led astray by false teachers. That's a real thing, okay? As a Bible-believing Christian in the South, in the Bible Belt, you are going to meet coworkers and neighbors who claim to believe in Jesus, but when they talk about their faith, what you're going to realize is it's a different Jesus. It's a different Jesus, okay? And so there are false prosperity gospels out there. There are works-based religions out there. There are even cults out there who are all using the name of Jesus, but who don't actually know the real biblical Jesus. And so you will find yourself in situations where you will need to contend for the orthodox, historic Christian faith. This too is the work of apologetics. So hopefully, from those two verses, you can see this is something we should be concerned with. Knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to explain what others uh, explain this to others winsomely, as, as Vodi Bauckham says. That is, in a way that is compelling and respectful. Um, we're trying to, I don't know if you know this, we're trying to win people to Christ. <laughs> we're trying to win people to Christ, not turn them off to Christ. And so finally, before we actually get into some apologetic topics, I want to read to you 1 Timothy 5, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. It says this, it says, The aim of our charge is love, the issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. If you know anything about apologetics in the current cultural climate, it can get ugly when people forget that the aim of our charge as believers is always one thing, love. In a culture that raves about truth bombs and Mic drops and fire emojis and phrases like, say it louder for the people in the back, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we must remember this. The goal of apologetics is not to arrogantly defend our faith from those who might try to damage it. It's to lovingly defend our faith to those who will damage themselves if they reject it. Okay. Church, our faith, let me tell you some good news. Our faith is not in danger. Our faith is not in danger. Regardless of how the last election went. Some people are like, oh no. It's like, no, our faith is good. Doesn't really have anything to do with that, actually. Maybe some people need to hear that. Our church might be behind budget. The culture around us might be less friendly towards Christians than ever, but our battle is not against flesh and blood. People, even people who are hostile towards our faith, are not our enemies. They are our mission. And frankly, hostile powers have been trying to stomp out Christianity for two 2,000 years. Your atheist friend or your liberal neighbor, they're not going to be able to do it. 
They're not going to be able to do it. And so our posture towards outsiders should not be one of arrogance and defensiveness. It should be one of humility and love. Because while no one is able to damage our faith, people do put themselves in great danger of eternal harm when they reject faith in Christ. For more on that, you can go back and listen to our sermon on hell from a few weeks ago, right? And so apologetics is something that should always be practiced with a great deal of compassion, not swagger. Okay, Compassion, not swagger. Our goal is to draw people in. Okay, Not push them away. 1 Corinthians 13 warns about this. There is a way to tell the truth that's going to sound like a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. There's a way to tell the truth that is unproductive and unhelpful. The way to do that is to tell the truth without love. We don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that. Okay? The Bible says that's pointless. It's pointless. It doesn't matter how right you are. You can be right in the wrong way, and in doing so, you can completely undermine the truth that you claim to believe. We don't want to tell the truth in the wrong way. It's, it might be worse than telling the truth, not telling the truth at all. Okay? Jesus came not just full of truth, but full of grace and truth. Right? We're instructed not just to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love, right? So this principle is just as important as everything else that I'm about to say next. The goal of apologetics is not to arrogantly defend our faith from those who might try to damage it. It's to lovingly defend our faith to those who will damage themselves if they reject it, all right? There's a big difference between these two mindsets, and it would serve us all well to consider how we communicate truth to others before we go just firing off truth at people, okay? But with that, let's go ahead and let's turn to the actual stuff of apologetics. Uh, I've already touched on this by saying that as Christians, we do not need to worry about uh, anyone damaging our faith because it's strong enough to take the heat. But let me just give you my main idea on Christian apologetics. Christianity is a reasonable faith with many cogent arguments founded on science, history, religion, and culture. Okay, Like, while Christianity does require faith because our hope is ultimately in future realities that we can't currently see, that does not mean that Christianity is a blind faith that contradicts and conflicts with the rest of human knowledge. In reality... In 2,000 years of Christian faith, science and history are still not able to refute the claims of Christianity. But actually, the more we learn, the more we have that coincides with the biblical worldview. So for the rest of our time, I just want to place a few points before you that kind of coincide with these categories that I've mentioned. Just bear in mind, um, this is not an exhaustive uh, apologetic argument. An entire Entire volumes have been written on these points and more, okay? So don't, don't take this sermon as like your apologetic silver bullet. Like, I mean, you can say some of these things that I'm saying, but there's, there's much more to be had. Um, 
And so I'm just giving you my best well-rounded attempt to show that Christianity, okay, Christianity is quite reasonable as far as faith practices go. And because of that, it is defendable. It's defendable because the arguments it makes are strong, not weak. Okay, the world wants to tell you that any argument you have for your faith is weak. They are wrong. They're wrong. So let me try to show you that. All right, let's start with the topic of science. Um, there are many who uh, attempt to press back on the claims of Christianity by saying that they believe in science, right? That's a really common thing. And uh, the first thing I'll respectfully say to that is great. Christians believe in science too. Uh, but what the common rebuttal of believing in science is really trying to say is because the existence of God cannot be quantifiably tested and proven, I don't have to believe in him, right? But my argument to that would be twofold. First of all, Christians believe that there are many things that can be quantifiably um, tested that make no sense apart from an incredibly intelligent and all-powerful creator God. And on the other hand, there are some observable realities that science just cannot come up with a good explanation for. Let's hit on those one at a time in order. First, uh, let's think about something that can be quantified. Okay, so something that can be measured. Okay, when I say quantified, I mean measured. Um, let's talk about energy. Okay, energy. Uh, a scientist who was of the opinion that physics was much easier to explain than God was once asked, What is energy? What is energy? That's a simple enough question for a scientist. So he said, well, you know, energy is the ability to do work. And so the person asking said, well, I'm not asking you what energy can do. I'm asking you what it is. To which the scientist said, well, it's, it's MC squared. E equals MC squared. To which the person said, I'm not asking you for the mathematical equation for energy. I'm asking you what energy is is in its most basic substance, what and why is energy in the universe to which the scientists had no answer? No answer. There are many scientific principles that could be pressed the same way to a place of not having an answer, right? Because while science is able to test and quantify things in the physical universe, it cannot ultimately explain the origin of the universe itself or even some of the most basic components of the universe, that said, perhaps one of the best explanations for God from a scientist I ever heard was a chemical engineer uh, who I met at Starbucks here in Crestview, actually. True story. I asked him, uh, I said, you know, what do you believe about the existence of God? And he said, you know, I'm pretty certain there is a God. Because in science, when you're dealing with the chemical properties of things and you examine them on the molecular level, what you discover and rely on heavily as a chemical engineer, is that particles, microscopic particles, have laws that they operate on, and they do not change. The next part's what really got me. He said, if there's a system of laws like that in science, how could there not be a lawgiver? How could there not be a lawgiver? He was essentially saying chemistry, for which he obviously really liked, okay? He was a chemical engineer. Chemistry makes too much sense 
to be random. It has too much design to be arbitrary. The physical universe is brilliant. And what this chemical engineer was saying is that he was unwilling to believe that something so complex could have come about by mere chance with zero intentionality. But that's the quantifiable side. Moving on to the category of things that science is just not able to quantifiably explain. I think the simplest thing to mention would be um, existence. Existence. I'll phrase it this way. Why is there a really amazing, complex, beautiful, and meaningful something instead of nothing? Like, if there's no God and thus no creator, then why is there stuff? Why is there stuff? Why is there such a thing as the sun? Why is there such a thing as a giraffe? Why is there such a thing as music? Why is there such a thing as friendship? Why isn't there just nothing? No matter, no space, no energy, no consciousness. Scientists cannot explain that, que- that question. And actually, in order to even venture to explain it, they have to bend the rules of thermodynamics and invent ideas like a Big Bang, right? Um, the theory basically goes like this. Maybe you know this, the Big Bang. Uh, there, was, uh, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. And then, bang, there was something. <laughs> that's how it goes, right? Okay, anyway, that's not the scientific way to say it, but that's, that is... Basically what they're saying. Which if they believed in a creator, fine. (laughs) Fine. That could be. But if you don't believe in an unmoved mover, then what caused the bang? What caused the bang? There's a Latin phrase that makes a lot of sense here. Ex nihilo, nihil fit. It means out of nothing, nothing comes. We know that, right? We know that. Scientists disproved spontaneous generation in the 1700s. Things don't just go poof and exist in and of themselves. That would be a terrifying world to live in, by the way. Um, A lot more car accidents and tripping over a lot more stuff. Anyway, things, particularly living things, have to come from somewhere, right? It's not a trick question. It's common knowledge. Nothing comes from. From nowhere. Nothing comes from nowhere. Think about this for a second. Close your eyes. Not tricking you. Close your eyes. I want you to think about nothing. No time, no space, no color, no sound, nothing. All right, think about nothing. Okay, open your eyes. Anybody able to do that? No. (laughs) No, you can't. Human beings cannot conceive of nothing. We're we're so constrained to the something, we can't imagine anything else. The reason I believe that we're not able to conceive of nothing, get this, is because it doesn't exist. Nothing doesn't exist. God does. God does. There was not a time with nothing. There was only a time when there was God. But moving past the idea of physical existence in general, why are there, let's push this further, why are there intangible things in existence? 
like beauty and, and meaning? Why is there such a thing as the moral concept of good that every sane person alive agrees on? Good things, love, family, belonging, pleasure, peace, justice. See, I'm not saying that God has to be one's only logical conception of meaning and beauty, but it's really hard to come up with another explanation. It's really hard to come up with another explanation. People who deny beauty and meaning in life, they usually wind up in a philosophical position called nihilism. Nihilism. Maybe that's a new concept for you. Nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. So objective truth, morality, values, it's all just void of meaning. Nothing means anything. It's all meaningless. That's nihilism. Maybe now you're thinking, okay, we're all really depressed now. (laughs) I agree. Here's why I've pressed us here. It's because the existence of beauty and meaning in life makes nihilism virtually untenable. Okay? That is, if you live your life with any, any kind of admiration for the beauty of existence, with any form of meaning, you cannot agree with nihilism. You cannot. I would argue that even people who claim to be nihilists, maybe you're surprised to hear there are people who do that. There are people who do that. You can't practically live out your own belief system because the minute that you enjoy something or love something or have some conviction about the way that something should be, you betray your own belief in the non-existence of meaning, right? I love how C.S. Lewis put this. He said, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a woman if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties of both her person and her character are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You cannot go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that it's the, it's the air of, of, its air of significance is a pure illusion. But the only reason you like music is because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still, in the lowest sense, have a good time, but just insofar as it becomes very good, just insofar as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far, you'll be forced to feel the hopeless disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in in which you actually live. So I make this first point because really what I'm saying is that even science itself, the further it attempts to explain the reality of existence, the further it goes in proving through the brilliance of the material universe that there must be meaning behind it. There must be meaning And to the degree that humanity sees beauty or objective assessment of the form and shape and color and essence of things that are good and enjoyable, the harder it becomes to say that there's nothing behind it all, right? It's hard to say there's nothing behind it. One scientist named Robert Jastrow was very troubled by the scientific theory of the Big Bang 
Because he knew that if existence came into being at some definitive point in time, the implications of that were beyond science and crossed over into the philosophical realm. Listen to what he said. I, I, I really like this. He said, If any scientist really examined the implications of the Big Bang, he would be traumatized. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak and he pulls himself over the final rock and he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> he says this because it's likely that he knows the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This is arguably the most important theological statement in the Bible because without it, nothing else has any foundation. And behind much of the cold, disagreeable scientific rhetoric, there lies a fear, as Robert Jastrow said, that it just might be true. It's almost like he had read Romans 1 that says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the existence of beauty and meaning in life makes nihilism virtually untenable because when it comes to meaning, there are only two choices. There's either meaning or there's not, right? If there's not, then you're headed towards an odd, unlivable nihilistic worldview, and if there is such a thing as objective meaning, then it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from somewhere. And the more you think about that, you'll be hard-pressed to figure out how meaning can come from somewhere if it doesn't come from someone. Because when it comes to objective truth, whether it be morality or science, how can there be laws if there's no lawgiver? Moving on, we've got a lot to cover from the topic of science because all that really gets into is God, generally speaking. Let's, let's talk a bit about history, specifically the history of the Bible. Uh, and as with the point I made about science, much more could be said and has been said, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase here. Um, the historicity and the efficacy of the Bible is unmatched. Okay, Historicity means historical authenticity. And efficacy means the ability to generate a desired result. So what I'm saying is that if Christianity were just a big sham, then surely 2,000 years would be enough to refute its source material. And in fact, what we see is the opposite. First of all, the Bible is indeed the most remarkable book in all of existence, whether you believe in its claims or not. The Bible's incredible unity puts it in a category by itself. There is nothing like it, okay? Here's what I mean. Ultimately, the Bible, okay, is a book about God, the story of God, reconciling all things in the universe back to himself through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. But it's actually a collection of 66 individual books. They're written actually in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and some Aramaic. It was, the Bible was pinned on, it was written 
on three different continents, Africa, Asia, a little bit of Europe. It was written over the course of 1,500 years by authors who ranged from kings to peasants to fishermen to poets to scholars. Um, It's in the format of history, sermons, letters, hymns, poetry, geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, and family trees. And all of that considered, it is clear enough for a third grader to read and mostly understand. It has one point, one theme, and one direction, to tell men who God is and of his great love for them and desire to rescue them from their sin and back into right relationship with himself. Okay? And so with all those variables, you would expect the Bible to be replete with errors and inconsistencies, but it's really not. Except for the occasional, you know, typographical, scribal error here and there in certain manuscripts, it is very, very consistent. And not only that, but the sheer number of times that the Bible references and interprets itself uh, from one text to another uh, within and without books and genres and testaments is insane. Like how that could have been done without divine intervention is anyone's best guess, but there there just aren't many good guesses. I have a visual representation for you right here. Um, If it's I don't know, it should be up here in just a second. It's also, in, it's hard to see here, but it's also in your notes if you're following along in the app. Um, this is a visual representation of 64,000 cross-references in Scripture. <laughs> 64,000 times that the Bible makes reference to itself. Not only backwards, but forwards as well right? Things in the Old Testament, referencing things in the New Testament and within books. You can see all the the arches there. That's all the the references that the Bible is making to itself. This is incredible how this could have been done by man. I have no idea. Um, Some people argue, well, you know, the Bible is so old. How can we trust it? But the Bible has more nearly identical manuscripts that have been found than any other ancient document. Again, with very small margin of error. There are over 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. I'll put it plainly. If you're not able to trust the Bible because of its age, there is not an ancient document that you will be able to trust. Okay? Because the Bible has the most, has the most manuscripts, and they're the same. So uh, other people argue that because the Bible's old, it must be antiquated, right? This represents the idea that C.S. Lewis aptly called chronological snobbery. Uh, It's a belief that because the Bible is an ancient document, uh, it's somehow discredited uh, or or out of date. This concept is, is propagated by people who would say, surely we know better now right? (laughs) Surely we know better now. Let me just tell you, um, humanity may have advanced technologically, but we have not become smarter. You have Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) People are not smarter, okay? They're not smarter. You know because you're laughing, right? People are still doing the same dumb, sinful stuff they've always done, Unfortunately, they could just do it way faster now because they have the internet. So, um, <clears throat> and so the Bible is actually as relevant as ever. It's as relevant as ever. But outside of the sheer amazingness of what the Bible itself is, no other book has been so scrutinized like the Bible. And yet somehow it has proven, it's yet to be proven in any way inaccurate. 
and the history it represents. In fact, the writings of other ancient historians as well as uh, ancient artifacts that are found usually align with and wind up confirming the details of the Bible. There's yet to be anything found from antiquity that refutes major details presented in Scripture. That said, there are still people out there that don't want to take the Bible seriously. And so they, they lob up objections like, well, the writers of the Bible were biased. Okay. Um, to that, I'll just say, so what? So what? Every historian is biased. <laughs> right? Every historian is biased. And you would not use that same logic with, say, someone of a Jewish heritage who wrote a history of the Holocaust. Because being biased does not mean that you have an inability to be honest or present facts as they are, right? Not to mention, you know, I'll say it this way. I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan, you know. Uh, and um, if you know anything about the Jags, you know it's unlikely they're going to win the Super Bowl anytime soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why I keep telling you this, I don't know. It's like, I don't know, masochistic or something. But anyway, if, for instance, in my love for the Jags, I wrote an alternate history piece about how the Jags actually won the Super Bowl in 2023, <laughs> what do you think would happen? Millions of people would rise up and say, um, no, <laughs> um, no, that is not what happened right? And if, if my lie, let's say my lie just started gaining traction because the internet, right? Um, and, you know, people with, who were much more reputable than me would get involved and they would crush it with the facts. They would crush it with the facts. Surely, with all of the historic vitriol towards Christianity, this would have happened if it could have. And if the claims of the Bible were untrue, but it hasn't. Hasn't happened. I'm not saying some people haven't tried, but it's been unsuccessful. Christians believe that's because the Bible is a divine human book. Its thematic unity and its historic survivability is a testament to that. The reason it holds up is because it's the very words of God. Why else would it still be here? And thus, it simply cannot be destroyed or stopped. But aside from the historicity component, it also has an efficacy component on its side. Simply stated, the Bible changes people, right? The Bible changes people. Not like a person here or there. <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of people have been radically changed by the message of the Bible. The Bible has turned hardened criminals <clears throat> into kind, gentle Lovers of good. It has turned prideful, manipulative people into humble servants. <clears throat> it has turned hedonists who love promiscuous sex and uninhibited consumption of drugs and alcohol into upright men and women who get married and raise strong families. The Bible does those things, right? The Bible opens people's eyes to the truth. It fills them with a new kind of unquenchable joy, and it sets them free from the vices that once seemed to have had such a hold on them. The Bible, when read and followed, it makes people better citizens, better employees, better spouses, better parents, better children, better siblings, better friends. These are the facts, not opinions. The Bible has amazing effects in the lives of people who open it and genuinely read it looking for help. I know 
because it happened to me. <laughs> it happened to me. Isaiah 55, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, uh, giving seed to sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. (laughs) So those who oppose Christianity, they often like to drag the Bible through the mud because if they can tear down the source, then they can effectively avoid its claims. But the reality is the Bible's still here after 2,000 years of abuse and it hasn't changed. It's just still doing what it's always done significantly changing the lives of people for the better. The historicity and efficacy of the Bible is unmatched, or in short, the Bible is true and it works like nothing else. Hand in hand with the Bible is the truth about Jesus. So my my third apologetic point today is my last one. I know it's been a lot. The influence of Jesus' life, teaching, and apparent resurrection is undeniable. Jesus of Nazareth was indeed a real historic man, who lived and worked as a carpenter, but became a Jewish teacher in the first century. In today's society, we're confronted with all kinds of religious ideas and systems of thought that contradict the Christian worldview, but none of these can contradict the historicity of Jesus. Okay? In regards to the truthfulness that Jesus lived and was crucified, there is no reliable scholar who would refute this. He lived and he was crucified on a Roman cross. That did happen, right? Other Reputable historians mention Jesus and events surrounding his ministry. Josephus, uh, being a key reputable Jewish historian, he was not a Christian. Okay, and so there's no question about it. Jesus was real. His ministry really happened. And after that ministry, the world has not been the same since because the teachings of Jesus are revolutionary. Let me put this in perspective for you. In the first century AD, Jesus was a poor carpenter from a podunk town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee in ancient Palestine. You're like, where? Exactly, okay? Um, If that doesn't describe how lowly he was, um, he he formed at the time what seemed to be a radical sect of Judaism with a ragtag bunch of societal rejects. Fishermen, tax collectors, and political zealots. He was then killed like a criminal on a Roman cross, one of the worst forms of capital punishment humanity has ever seen. And yet today, the followers of his teaching represent the largest religion in the world. 2.1 billion professing followers. That's almost a billion with a B, a billion more than the second largest, which is Islam. And so if for no other reason than the sheer intrigue at the possibility of a movement like this, Christianity is worth seriously examining Western civilization has been practically shaped by Christianity. From the formation of the calendar and holidays, the founding of many institutions like hospitals and universities, arts, music, basic concepts of morality, for crying out loud, even several of the other most prominent world religions, they have to address Jesus in their own literature. You can't get away from him. You can't get away from Jesus. There's something special about him. I would say the most special thing about him of all would be the matter of his resurrection because the rest really hangs on that part. Mark Dever commented on the claim of Jesus' resurrection by saying, he says, a denial 
of the resurrection does not figure in early anti-Christian apologetics. That would be the obvious thing to attack if you wanted to stamp out this fledgling, fledgling religion, right? But no one attacks it. Why do you think that is? I think it was because too many people knew it was true. There may have been bewilderment about its significance, but the fact of Jesus' resurrection was never denied. Jesus was clearly raised from the dead. The argument was simply about what that could have possibly meant. And to this day, Jesus' resurrection has still not been successfully refuted. Though the Roman Empire at the time, as well as the Jewish religious establishment, they both had every reason to get to the bottom of what happened so that they could squash his movement because they perceived it as a threat. And yet they didn't do it, presumably because they couldn't. The New Testament tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 of his disciples. So it was simply too widespread and too explosive to contain the news that Jesus had defeated death. I love how the book of Acts describes what it's like uh, when the Jewish elites would encounter Jesus' disciples after his resurrection. In Acts 4, it says, uh, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Right? Get this in Acts 17. I love this. It says, now when they passed through uh, Amph- Amphipolis, I don't know how to say that, sorry, and <laughs> Apollonia, they, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, uh, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of them, uh, not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The reason I love these two passages is because they're both still true today, right? Ordinary people who have been with Jesus are still turning the world upside down and telling everyone that he is the true king because he died on a Roman cross and was raised three days later to save them from their sin. So the resurrection of Jesus uh, in and of itself is one of the greatest apologetic topics to get to because um, if it really happened and a lot of people believe it did, then that changes everything, doesn't it? That changes everything. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection, that really gives that person an unsurpassed level of credibility. Like just reasoning this out, if Jesus said he was going to be crucified but rise again and he did it, that seems like a really good reason to take the rest of what he said pretty seriously. Josh McDowell uh, is an older but relatively well-known Christian apologist. He began his adult life as an atheist. 
One day on a college campus, some friends of his who happened to be Christians challenged him, and this is uh, how he details what happened next. He said, they challenged me to make a rigorous intellectual uh, examination of the claims of Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he inhabited a human body and lived among real men and women, that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, and he was buried and resurrected three days later, uh, and that he's still alive and can change a person's life even today. McDowell goes on to say, he said, I accepted my friend's challenge mostly out of spite to prove them wrong. I was convinced the Christian story would not stand up to evidence. I was a pre-law student, and so I knew a thing or two about evidence. He started by examining the Bible and says, I was sure that if I could uncover indisputable evidence that the Bible is an unreliable record, the whole of Christianity would crumble. I took the challenge seriously. I spent months in research. I even dropped out of school for a time to study in the historically rich libraries of Europe. But I found evidence, evidence in abundance, evidence I could hardly believe with my own eyes. Finally, he said, I could come to only one conclusion. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the Old and New Testament documents were some of the most reliable writings in all of history. And if they were reliable, what about this man, Jesus, who I had dismissed as a mere carpenter? I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter and that he was actually all that he claimed to be. I originally had a whole other point I was going to give you, um, but I've already gone long. The truth is, Christianity is a reasonable faith with many cogent arguments founded on science, history, religion, and culture. And so there, there's so many good arguments, I could hardly even fit them into one sermon. Honestly, uh, to do the topic of apologetics justice, it would need its own teaching series. But at the end of the day, I figured Jesus was a good place to land. We could go round and round on so many scientific arguments and historical facts in Scripture to kind of bolster its validity. But really, the question that every apologist should strive to get to is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? He's too prominent of a figure to simply set aside. He said he was going to lay down his life and take it back up again, and he did it. He said he's going to build his church, and 2,000 years later, here we are. He said the truth that he spoke would change people and set them free, and it does. So if you want to dive deeper into apologetics, I'd be happy to suggest some books for you to read. But in the end, it's all about people getting to a place where they really wrestle with and make a decision about Jesus. Jesus was a real person. He is a real person. His impact and influence on the world for good are undeniable. And his message, the gospel, is totally different than any other religious message. It's actually anti-religion. Do you know that? <laughs> the gospel is anti-religion. Every other religion gives you a list of things to do in order to make God love you. But Jesus said, I'm God and I already love you. So much so that I'm going to die for you so that you can live with the freedom of knowing that all that needed to be done has already been done. All you need to do is trust me. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So what exactly would stop you from believing in a God that good? 
That's the question. That's the kind of question that apologetics should really aim to get to, where we winsomely explain what we believe and why we believe it to others, or to others, that they might join us in our faith. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. The evidence of you is everywhere in creation. While there are those who say that you cannot be quantifiably proven, Father, as Christians, we say the universe itself is quantifiable proof that you exist. That's what your word says. And so, Father, I pray that as believers, we would be people who study our faith, who study the word, who know what we believe and why we believe it, and that we would make that a task that we aim to fulfill, that we would be able to explain to others what we believe. God, if we don't do that, truthfully, we're not being responsible Christians. We need to give ourselves to the task of apologetics because there are many who are going to have questions when we share the gospel with them. I pray that we would be a people um, who don't think that we have a blind faith. You've not given us a blind faith, God. You've given us a reasonable faith. We thank you for that. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus and that you've revealed who he is to us in your word. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.